Hello, and welcome to Her Voice, a podcast by HerMD. HerMD is a female forward wellness center empowering women through comprehensive health, beauty, and wellness services. Today, HerMD founder Dr. Somi Javed and Chief Growth Officer Kamel Caruso are joined by Dr. Holly Richmond. Wow. Um, so Holly, I'm just going to start with your background and you're a licensed marriage and family therapist, a certified sex therapist, and you hold a PhD in somatic psychology. So tell us more about your, your path and what inspired you to really focus on sexual therapy. Oh gosh. I feel like there's, I, I, you know, this is a great question. I feel like there's kind of the professional and the personal, um, and for a lot of healers, I feel like there's that personal thread. So the PhD in somatic psychology, I feel like not everybody knows what that is. So somatic means body-based soma translates to the body. So somatic psychotherapy brings together the body and the mind. So I'm listening as much to what my clients' bodies are telling me as what their words are telling me. Now, at the end of the day, I'm still a psychotherapist. So, you know, I, I work mostly virtually. So it is talk therapy, but it's, there's a lot of body-based emphasis and a lot of body-based exercises. So it's a slower process to try to bring out what the body is telling us. So I think that's, we can't look at sex without looking at the body. You know, when, whenever anyone says, why somatic psychotherapy? I'm like, well, what goes to together more than, than sex and the body? Like we have to be looking at these two equations. Now, the little personal piece of this is that I'm a somaticizer. So what that means and what I didn't know until I really started my own healing journey and started looking at this is my body would speak for me. So I wouldn't know anything was wrong, high functioning, getting through my day, getting stuff done, but my body would have chronic pain issues, different types of disorders. And until I really slowed down enough to listen, it kept, you know, first the body whispers, then it knocks, and then it was pushing me over. So I really learned to listen to what my body is saying. And and that's what I love helping my clients do as well. And I think a lot of people don't recognize that they are somaticizers as well. I like the way you put that, Holly. If you think about a young child who's anxious and they keep telling you that their tummy's hurting, there may be no appendicitis or gastroenteritis or something wrong, right? But it's their anxiety, their feelings are presenting in a way that they can understand and it's palpable to them. Women also describe it tension headaches, right? There's no tumor. There's no high blood pressure. It's actually our tension manifesting in a way that is palpable, tangible, something that we understand. So a lot of us, most of us have experienced some form of somatization. I just don't think we use the terminology that you do, right? You don't understand what that what that means, but most of us in our day-to-day life have experienced it or had a loved one experience um, our emotions uh, manifest in a physical symptom. Absolutely, Somi, that was beautifully said. And, and from your perspective too, and I would love to just hear you speak on this, a lot of times when women go to an MD, they're told, oh, you're fine, don't worry about it. It's not a tumor, it's not high blood pressure, so you're fine, and it kind of diminishes their pain and disregards it. And then they're left walking through the world in pain going, well, I was told I'm fine. So I don't know what to do with this. Yeah, no. And that's, you know, I call that the invisible patient because that's what they do when they repeatedly dismiss women and their symptoms. And 
I always um, empower them and say, hey, listen, you know your body better than anyone else. And yes, it may not be you know, cancer or a very serious physical medical condition, but obviously we still need to get treatment because your symptoms are real you're in pain or you know you're you're hurting so we need to figure this out so that's where i touch base with whether it's my pelvic floor physical therapist whether it's my counselors um, psychiatrists whatever the patient needs uh, a lot of my patients are very vocal and say i would prefer you know talk therapy over a medication and that's fine with me my yeah. job is you know the quarterback and to get them to the right person so that they aren't ignored and that their symptoms are validated worked up and treat it appropriately, right? You don't want anyone walking through this world in pain or feeling like um, they're invisible. And in sexual healthcare, the biggest um, you know, disorder that I see that comes um, from emotions or can is vaginismus, right? We have this brain-body connection, and if in the past we've been hurt or even an attempted hurt or an attempted you know, exam, whatever it is, or even you know, attempting to put a tampon in and it felt wrong, our body then uh, associates pain with any type of touch at the external genitalia. And guess what happens? Those muscles contract down. And so many women walk around with blame. They've been told, oh, you just need to drink some vodka or you just need to relax. Or someone said to my patient a couple weeks ago, just put your big girl pants on and have sex because otherwise he's going to leave you. And it's so much harm is done in that, right? And so we need to get to the bottom of it. I, I tell people all the time, it's involuntary. We right. we have to treat what's triggering it, but you can't just relax. Um, and my biggest example of that is I tell patients, I put patients to sleep and inject Botox. That's the, the last line therapy for those women. And even when they're asleep with anesthesia, those muscles are still firing. So how as physicians can we be so short-sighted and, and expect women to control those muscles when they can't? Um, so you're so right in sexual health care. You have to look at the physical. You have to look at the emotional. It is so very connected. Absolutely. Um, and again, wonderfully said. So it's, it's sometimes it's dismissed, it's disregarded. And then, so not only is the patient walking around in pain, but I feel like by the time women especially come to my office, they're like, I think I'm crazy, right? I'm feeling crazy. Like I feel out of control and no one's really validating my position here. I, I had a patient last week who it wasn't sexual health. It was just menopause symptoms. And she's like, I'm coming to you because like six or seven gynecologists have said, you know, it's not menopause and because they equate menopause with just hot flashes. And she's like, so can you just send me to a really good psychologist? And I was like, okay, yes, I will, you know, because you want, I said, but do you know that we can treat this, 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 and this all with medication if you want? And they're like, what? That's menopause? I'm like, Yes, menopause does have, uh, you know, changes on depression or anxiety or cognitive impair, sleep patterns. Her mind was blown away. And I was like, how are we, how is this healthcare in 2021 for women? I, I do not get it. Why do you think like I, as a patient, as like a woman who would be a patient, not any kind of healthcare provider, mental healthcare provider, like I'm, as you both are talking, I'm like, wow. I probably have had these like responses, but then we're so quick to say what you pointed out, Holly, and, and you did so me. It's like, well, you're physically fine. There's nothing physically wrong with you. So 
just, just go about it. Like, why is that? Like, why is that the case? Why is that happening? And we're ignoring, like you said, the tummy troubles, like I flash back to Luca, my son, who would constantly complain about stomach pain. And um, when he's first, and we were like, is it, you know, is there something wrong with him? And it happened, it was anxiety. And, you know, Somi told me that. And so that's why I was like, okay, I'm going to get this checked out. But no one had said, everyone just looked for the physical. No one looked at, you know, anything else. I think there's a few reasons. One of the biggest is Western medicine. And I think culturally, we just haven't made that mind body bridge yet. We just, we don't pay attention to both enough. Um, I think the conversation around that is evolving, especially in the sexual health world. So I'm so happy about that. And there's a lot of room to grow. The other reason with women is, um, I'll just say one word, the patriarchy of uh, women's health has not been studied. And, you know, God forbid, we really take time and money to study women's sexual health. So there's just not a language. There's not enough research. Um, and again, you know, so many, this is where you step in and are really filling a gap there. You know, and there's provider bias too. And it's not just male on female patients. It's also female patients. It's part of that patriarchy, right? Like this is the way you're taught. Oh, you know, women are like hysterectomy. They're hysterical. And you, there was this very elegant um, research paper that came out of the UK where they had looked at all these women that were given these um, psychiatric diagnoses. But when they actually reviewed the medical records, a lot of them had true uh, neurologic disease like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. And really, it was just blamed on their, you know, their gender, which is just it's so sad that it's continuing. And that's what, you know, female and male providers are taught. And I agree with you. It's changing. Um, not as quickly as I would uh, like it to, but it is changing. And so I think there is no real good um, sensitivity training. As I'm entering the business world for her MD, I'm, I'm learning about all these sensitivity trainings that happen in, in the business world, in the corporate world. And it, it, none of this, I mean, I went through a very traditional residency program. None of this was ever, you know, taught to me. I wasn't trained um, and here we are dealing with the most sensitive areas of the body. We're talking about things like infertility, sexual health, menopause, and no one teaches you how to truly um, interview, talk to a patient, and how to be sensitive. Like you learn all about anatomy and diagnosis and ruling out the bad stuff, but no one truly teaches you the elegance or the art of medicine and truly seeing people. Mm. Wow. Um that was so well put. And it, it's such a shame that it's kind of just ignored. If it's not physical, just deal with it kind of a thing because there's no treatment. You're fine is what you're kind of told when you're absolutely not fine. Um, so Holly, your focus on somatic psychology, how does that work within sex therapy? Yes. So um, again, the soma and sex seem to go together to me naturally. I treat all, I do kind of a general holistic sex therapy. So I treat everything from sexual pain, um, couples therapy, um, desire discrepancies, kinks and fetishes, um, erectile issues. 
but 60% of my clients at least are still survivors of sexual trauma. So that's really how my heart hooked into this. So I did my 3000 hours of internship at a rape crisis center. And I would, I learned quickly, I was taught well how to treat trauma, but I wasn't taught how to treat sexual health. So that's when I kind of like expanded my mind. I said, okay, the PhD in somatic psychology for sure. And then the extra training in sex therapy, that sex therapist certification. And I did my dissertation on the recovery of sexual health after sexual assault, because I wanted to be able to put the body, the body and the mind together and really have some tools about, okay, again, I know how to talk about trauma and I know how to move people through that, but how do I add in the sexual wellness and relational wellness component of it? Holly, I want to ask you something that comes up in my day-to-day practice. So I want you to define trauma a little bit more because I will have women who come to me that were um, subjected to an attempted, you know, rape and they keep rationalizing, like, I don't understand why I'm so, these are their words, messed up, Dr. Javade. It's not like it actually happened. So I think we really need to define for women what trauma doesn't always mean, you know, that there was penetration or, you know, the rape happened. There are so many other things that can traumatize us as women, as patients, as human beings. So can you explain um, professionally what you mean by, by trauma? Absolutely. Trauma does not mean violent. That's where we get tripped up. Nothing violent happened to me. Trauma means non-consensual. Another way, two words that I love from Dr. Peter Levine, trauma means too much too soon. Too much too soon. And I didn't give my full consent. I I love that way of looking at it because I think it would have, it would help so many women understand or patients understand why they're being triggered, right? Because they're trying to justify it and they can't wrap their head around why they've lost their libido or arousal or why sex all of a sudden hurts or why their body has completely shut down even in a safe environment with their own partner after they've been through trauma, like you said. I often, I'll go to a a case of sexual abuse. So sexual abuse is defined as um, non-consensual sex for anyone who can't consent. So that's under the age of 18 in most states. We would never say that a child who experienced sexual abuse did not have trauma. We would never say that, right? Right. But in most, over 80% of cases, that child, there wasn't violence attributed to that abuse. There was actually, actually extra attention. There was perceived care. There was extra gifts. It was, you know, um, kind of wrapped up in a, in a ball of, oh, I'm going to take care of you. You're getting this extra thing, this special thing, this special thing between us that's a secret. And it's one of the most traumatic things that could ever happen to anyone, but it wasn't violent. But what it was was non-consensual too much too soon. Yeah. That is really, really interesting way of looking at it and actually very disturbing, but it's so true what you're saying. Most children aren't attacked, right? Right. It's it's by someone that they know. Right, right. No, that, and for me, I will also tell you that as we're talking about survivors, um, a lot of my cancer patients will describe themselves going through trauma, emotional trauma, physical trauma. They talk about what radiation, chemo, surgery has done to them physically and how they don't even feel human. And they talk about, 
they use the word trauma. And so, you know, we do get counseling involved with them. Obviously, I treat them with whatever medications, but they feel they've been through a war. And then the other thing they find so traumatizing is even though they have beaten their cancer or survived their cancer, they still identify as a cancer patient and they don't want to because they want to take back that part of their life, whether it's feeling like a woman or, you know, their femininity or whether it's in the bedroom. And so they want to reclaim that and they don't want to be identified as a cancer patient anymore. And so they will describe all of the trauma they have been through, um, even though it wasn't, like you said, an assault or attack or didn't have violence involved, but they describe it to me as trauma. Mm, Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And you mentioned that word reclaiming. Um, So that's a really nice segue into the work that Holly, you've been doing with this new book you have coming out, um, which I think is so interesting. Um, And I have a ton of questions about it, but it's called Reclaiming Pleasure, a Sex Positive Guide for Moving Past Sexual Trauma and Living a Passionate Life. And so tell us, you know, what the focus of that book is, because I can imagine there are people who experience trauma, potentially at a very young age, right, who are survivors, um, all the way up through, you know, adulthood and beyond. And so it's, you know, it covers such a vast spectrum um, of ages and when people can experience that trauma. So tell us a little bit more about the book. Oh, thank you. Yes, it's, um, so this is a continuation of my dissertation in some ways, but written in a very friendly layperson language and covers all kinds of sexual trauma. So, you know, when I was working on this, I'm like, how do you translate this, this heavy topic into something that feels hopeful? And so me, that's what I just heard you saying about the cancer survivors. Like there has to be another side to this. There has to be the hopeful side of this. And for me in sexuality, it's really talking about pleasure. Um, so how do we move towards eroticism which can be sexy, but is more how I define it. It's more like life force, right? It's more life force and vitality and feeling desire again, and be able to take back those elements of pleasure that we couldn't really take in when we are just in our survivorhood. So basically it's the idea surviving's not enough. You've survived. The worst is over. You've gotten through that, but there is so much more. There's the what next. Um, and that's what this book is about. And so what does it mean to be sex positive and why is it so important for us as human beings and especially as women to be sex positive? Yes. So when people ask me that, they're like, oh, that means you have to have a lot of sex. You have to love sex. I'm like, no, that that doesn't mean it's not what it means at all. So to me, I define sex positive is this. All sex is good sex as long as it's consensual and pleasurable, right? And when we're talking about survivors, they definitely didn't have consent and they most likely didn't have pleasure. So if we reframe, restructure, rebuild their sex lives from the ground up, it's got to contain consent first off. And then how do we bring in that pleasure? And the when you just have those ter- two parameters, consent and pleasure, We also take out judgment because what's good sex to you is not gonna be good sex to so me, is not gonna be good sex to me. 
I might be super kinky. And so he's like, no, that is not for me. She's not going to judge me about it. And I'm not going to judge her about it. I might like to have sex once a year. And that's great for me and my relationship where you and your relationship come out will be like, oh no, I need to be having sex once a week, or I don't feel like I'm alive. It's all good. Like, let's stop the judgment, stop saying what's normal and, and define it for ourselves. I love that. I love that. I love that. I love that because so much of it is comparison um, to either what people see on TV or what they hear from their girlfriends or what people are discussing at cocktail hour. And, you know, I think that stems from not having good, safe places to learn about sexuality. And I also hate the word normal in my office, um, you know, and that's why we use other parameters to measure because you said sex is so difficult to measure. It's not like blood pressure or, you know, cholesterol level. And that's a lot of what my counseling is in the office is it means different things to everybody else. So stop asking everybody else about how many times they're having sex and worry about what matters to you and your partner or partners, what, what matters to you, what fulfills you, what makes you happy. Um, that's your normal. Don't worry about anyone else's normal. And I think we really need to get away from that. I have so many young girls who are broken because they're not having sex, like 50 shades of gray or whatever, you know, sexual show is on, um, and Firefly Lane, you know, Tully was having orgasms in like two minutes and great for putting sex on TV. Like that's wonderful. But a lot of girls were like, but that doesn't happen to me. And I'm like, well, let's talk about orgasm. Let's talk about orgasm, you know, gap. And let's talk about what turns you on, not what turns on this character. Right. And so but I think it's something tangible that allows them to bring that into the doctor's office and at least start talking about it right perfect then yes and then in that case I'm all for it but then you have to talk about the orgasm gap um <laughs> that's a movie um and the same you know where are they learning about sex from porn probably some of them if it's not tv perhaps they're looking at pornography again not real life I'm not anti-porn right. but it's certainly not sex education and there's nothing that's very real about it agreed <laughs> agreed for sure um yeah and so when you're working with survivors and those who've experienced trauma, what are some of the most, I mean, I don't know if this is an easy question to ask, um, but what are you seeing with patients? What are some of the most common things that they face emotionally? And then Somi, I'd love to hear like how that physically, what can also happen? Mm -hmm. So emotionally, I would say the top tier is anxiety just this sense of feeling unsafe in the world. And even if I say no, my no is not gonna be respected. So they have poor boundaries. They don't speak up for themselves. Um, there's this chronic sense of anxiety. And then they have the stomach issues, uh, vaginismus, hair loss. I mean, I see, I see everything. Um, the next here would be relational problems. So they're really having a hard time maintaining healthy relationships and having good communication. Um, in general and specifically about sex. Uh, and then thirdly, there's just this lack of um, sex education, this idea of sex positivity, of pleasure being a priority. They just haven't even heard that language yet. So that's the next layer that I'm working on. I will see big problems with uh, libido and desire. Mm -hmm. um, it's almost like they have protected that part of them and it's completely gone away, even in a perceived safe environment with their husband, their boyfriend, girlfriend, you know, spouse, whoever it is, they just can't turn that part of themselves back on again. And so I see problems with libido, with 
um, arousal. So they're no longer, you know, if they're getting uh, moisture problems, they feel dry or penetration hurts, their pelvic floor gets tight. Sometimes even they'll have pain in their hips during intercourse because just everything is kind of contracted down. I definitely see the anxiety problems. I see sleep problems. I see depression. So I think it, it's pervasive of all parts of their life. It's not just limited to the bedroom. Um, and so it's, it's very fascinating um, what happens, but there are so many treatment options. And I think that's the way as a provider, I really try to get them to change the narrative and say, yes, this happened. We have to deal with all of this, but look at all the things that we can do for you in 2021 and really help you um, through this journey. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. And, and so me, I, I see the same physical problems and then I send them to you because yeah, but the, the pelvic floor therapy, um, I just can't say enough how much that helps for pain during sex issues and the, the conversations around desire and arousal. Those are so much fun for me. I mean, so many women have not even thought about that for themselves. They haven't even thought about what turns me on. What do I think sexy? It's been all about, well, if my husband gets off then, or my partner, or, you know, I'm just not really concerned with my own pleasure because I've never prioritized it, which is just, no, I'm not, I'm not going to live with that anymore. Yeah, that's what we call, you know, checking a box sex or keeping the piece sex or, and you're right, so many women haven't, when I ask them that question, they're kind of stunned, you know, like, no one's ever asked me that before. And I can't believe my healthcare provider is asking me that, or I can't believe I haven't thought about myself, you know, in that way in so long, because I'm always worried about my partner. But if you think about women, we, we do have a tendency to do that, right? We put our girlfriends, our children, our spouses, our job everything um, before ourselves. I think women are just very giving in that manner, um, but almost, you know, to a fault at times, right? Because we forget to take care of ourselves. We absolutely do. We yeah. overfunction, and eventually there will be a price to pay. Yes. Yes. But I can say, again, as not a provider, before I started working at HerMD, um, I don't even know, like, have a very, like, great, satisfying sex life, but like, I don't think anyone asked, nor do I ever think I really sat down and thought about pleasure or desire. Like it just wasn't something that I, I don't think it enters a lot of people's minds to like really think about it and say, what do I like? What does, you know, what do I want? Um, and not think about it from like the partner perspective. So I think it's fascinating, but, um, and so how have we seen that sex positive movement change recently? Because, you know, we're in this field, so, uh, you know, we stay pretty up to date, but I feel like there's some tides that are turning for the better. Um, but I would love to hear both of your perspectives on that. Let's begin by saying that the tide is turning, but there's still so much room for improvement. So I feel like that Gen Z, so that 16 or 18 to the young 20s, they really know what they're entitled to as far as pleasure goes, more so than we did. Maybe not the whole breadth of it, but they have a better idea and they're more comfortable advocating for themselves. So I see that and I support that just because there's more media about sex positivity and sexuality than what I grew up with or probably what you grew up with. But there's still not sex education because we live in the country that we live in. So there's, there's enormous room for improvement there. Um, body image is getting better. I feel like we have normalized more types of bodies. 
different cultures, different colors. Like we don't just have this white, blonde, blue-eyed person who is the epitome of what pretty is supposed to be. I am so thankful for that. I'm so thankful that curves are more acceptable. Again, there's room for improvement, but we're getting there. And then the other thing that I love is the pronouns. Like there's so many intake forms that you fill out now and what's your pronoun? Man, that wasn't a conversation 10 years ago or barely five years ago. So I feel like that fits in the sex positive uh, container as well. I feel like as a physician where, you know, the sad statistic that less than 30% of OBGYNs are even trained in sexual health. I finally feel like, you know, there are societies like Sexual Medicine Society that is now training physicians, the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health, you know, so there's Ishwish. I see online summits, you know, her MD has done a couple, but there I've seen some other sexual health summits pop up that are great resources for physicians that may not, or providers that may not have, you know, time to go away for a conference. But at least you should know enough about sexual health and sexuality that if someone's coming to you, you don't dismiss them or, you know, turn them away, but you say, okay, I don't specialize in that, but I know someone who does. And even to learn the vocabulary or the way patients speak about it, and then to get them to someone like Holly or myself or, you know, whoever is in the realm or who is around you. So I do see that starting to change. There are opportunities for providers um, to start learning about sexual health. I agree with you, Holly. My younger patients definitely are, um, they don't feel stigma or taboo. They, they want to come in. They want to talk about sexual health and pleasure. Um, and there's no shame or stigma there, which I'm very proud of them. Uh, and it's very important to them. They get it that sexual health is part of overall health care. And um, so kudos to them and their generation. Um, and then I am seeing more pop up on TV. I am seeing tougher topics. I am seeing, you know, um, open relationships on TV, same sex. Um, I remember being young and if there was a, a girl, girl kiss or a boy, boy kiss, it was like, oh my God, can you believe this was on TV? And now it's like, it's typical. They'll show all types of relationships. And I think that that is a blessing because it normalizes, you know, all types of relationships. So I do think some things are changing. I think online is still tough because of all the restrictions. Um, I know a lot of the online companies that sell sexual tools and toys and um, some of the things like ONUT, you know, that we um, recommend to patients, they all have this, you know, teaching library, teaching tools. So definitely we're trying, but I just think there's so many restrictions online still. They don't see any difference between what we do or what those companies are doing and frankly porn, right? Which are two completely separate entities. So I think we still struggle with um, getting information to patients because of those restrictions. Yeah, I, I agree. And um, I do some consulting in the sex and technology space as well. And try being a female founder of one of those pleasure companies and to get funding or to have a bank say, oh, no, well, that's sexual pleasure. So now we're we're not comfortable with that because we're associating you with pornography, which is just infuriating. It's very infuriating and crazy because also think about all those women that would benefit from what we're saying, like the educational components that those companies have, the products and tools themselves, and they cannot find them. They cannot find them because they search online and it's, you can't find them because it's equated to porn, right. which is completely crazy when it's 2021. It, it is. Um, 
Um, so how can we, how can parents, because I know we have a lot of parents out there, myself being one, teach sex positivity to our children, both girls and boys? It's, it's a big question. Um, I'm going to start with normalize, normalize, normalize. So listen, listen to what they're telling you. Open the conversation, um, however that might be with your child. You know your child, so you're seeing them change. You know when it's going to be time for that conversation. If you're watching TV, crack open that door. I know it's scary to step through. Talk about what they just saw. And if they have a question for you, if you're in the middle of like, oh my gosh, this is my busiest moment of the day and you just asked me this question, please ask, hey, can we talk about that later tonight and go back and talk about it. And then whatever they're coming to you with, normalize it so they're not weird. They feel like they can come to you. And if it needs to be addressed by a psychotherapist, a psychiatrist, um, an MD, an OBGYN, point them in the right direction. You know, as a mother, I agree. My kids will ask me all kinds of things, partly because they know what I do for a living and I never want them. Um, sometimes my poor oncologist husband is blushing at dinner and he's like, oh my God, it's always vaginas and tampons. And, you know, and I'm like, I would rather have them learning from me, um, asking in a safe space than porn or TV or, you know, on the bus ride home with their friends because who don't know anything either. So I definitely think normalizing everything and not making it a big deal, but I still have some patients, you know, they grew up very conservatively. They're not ready. So then they come to me and they're like, well, can you do it? And I'm like, well, absolutely. If you bring them in as a patient, you know, we'll talk about um, tampons. We'll talk about hygiene. We'll talk about sexuality. We'll talk about sexual health care. Um, but then sometimes they'll say, we want you to tell them that sex is bad until marriage. I'm like, uh-uh, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk to them about, you know, their body, their choice and answer all of their questions. Um, so, but a lot of patients still in this day and age, they recognize that they're not going to be the best person, or they may not be able to put their own feelings aside because it is their child, right? At the end of the day. Um, so they do bring them in. And I think that's a great idea. Either you take them to a therapist or a psychologist or a physician who can have that conversation um, really stigma-free um, and really allow that person to um, empower themselves. Because think about it, that first touch, that first encounter, they're going to remember that. And if they remember it as being open and not a big deal, they'll be more likely to ask a question again when something happens, if it's a problem or you know, an issue. But if you shut them down, you're doing a great disservice to them. Absolutely. And, and there are some great books out there. Um, sex is a funny word is one for little kids, right? So it's, it's probably like this eight to 12 year old, but as, as it goes up, there's books for boys, books for girls, books for non-binary books for trans. So I also, you know, I'm a big proponent of look for, for, for those book resources too, if you know, and I respect a parent who's like, man, I can't have that conversation. Good to know about yourself, but either point them to someone who can, or some good resources. Yeah, that's good to know. I mean, I have a daughter who's going to be 20 very soon, actually, which is so crazy for me to think about. But, you know, they're very brave in coming to their parent because you are their parent, right? And so there is that, uh, I got to ask mom or dad. So putting it, you know, for me as like a non-provider, like thinking about, okay, they're being brave coming to me. Um, and, you know, my daughter said something recently to me where she was talking to me about sex and, you know, um, different things about her relationship and whatnot. And her friends were like, who are you talking to? I could hear them in the background. She said, my mom. And they said, you know, it made me feel sad 
sad a little bit. Um, they're like, wow, we can't talk to our mom about that at all. And like, we wish we had that relationship or we wish we could talk about that with our moms because it's just so open. And I'm fortunate that I do this now. And, you know, I think that helps me talk about it as well, but um, it's certainly very interesting. I'm, I'm glad that I can be that for her. And I'm hoping that, you know, other, other girls, other, you know, everyone could have that relationship where they're able to get that. I do too, with somebody. With somebody. Yeah. Um, so a good what- starting point too is just talking to them about menstrual health, gynecologic health, all of that. Um, body positivity. Um, my youngest is in sixth grade and there was a group of them up in the bedroom and they were talking. There was a teacher that was giving them a really, really hard time about going to the bathroom with little backpacks. And what they were going to the bathroom with were tampons or pads because they didn't want to carry them in their hands. And so my daughter was stopped. And when that happened to my daughter, it was unfortunate for the school, but I called and I said, okay, this is Tommy Javade, and I'm a gynecologist. They're like, we know what you do. I'm like, well, listen, what happened to my daughter? I said, she's obviously not cheating. Um, this is an issue. And, you know, you cannot expect these girls to walk around with this. They don't want it in front of the boys. They should be able to take these little backpacks. And I have an issue with this teacher. And I said, you either talk to him or I will. <laughs> They're like, no, Dr. Javade, we'll talk to him. And so apparently he had been doing it to all the girls. And so they were all talking and um, Maya's like, come in here, mom. I said, what? And they were like, thank you, Dr. Somi, because of you. Now we are able to go into the bathroom. And, you know, he was told why that we're on our period. And one of them was like, now I don't have to, you know, make excuses and I can walk into the bathroom and it's no big deal. And I was like, wow. So even as, you know, sixth graders, they felt so much better, almost relief that, you know, that was out in the open. And so it does make a huge difference to them. It makes an impact the way we approach things and the way we empower them from a very young age. That's a beautiful story. Thank you for advocating for them. And they will continue to advocate because that's how it works. Right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so what can happen to us, you know, when we're not raised in a sex positive culture environment, because there are so many cultures where you know, wait till mar- sex is for marriage, sex is bad, like, you know, and then I can't even imagine the feelings that someone young grows up with, if they start to have sexual feelings, and then they're taught, it's bad, it's wrong. So what can happen to us when we're raised in that kind of an environment? Um, there's the one word that sums us up beautifully, and that's shame, right? So shame, um, guilt is I've made a mistake. And that can be a healthy emotion to experience sometimes, sometimes not all the time for sure. Shame in contrast is I am a mistake. So because my parents and my religion or whatever it was told me sex is bad and sex was wrong, yet I was an eight-year-old and I started touching myself out of curiosity and because it felt good, um, oh my gosh, what do I do with that now? Well, I guess I must be bad. And then you grow up thinking I am bad, not as just sex is bad. I am bad for wanting sex, something that's completely normal, something that's that physiological response outside of my control for the most part. Like that's a normal, healthy response. And we all get there at different ages, but it's super hard for my clients that experienced as a young girl. And some young children do, they'll, they'll touch themselves and experiment. And that's normal. Again, not a great word, but it's not certainly not abnormal. Um, so it's just, again, going back and retelling that story, 
it's not sex that's bad. It's certainly not that you that are bad. This is all healthy and uh, biological evolution. And this is what was supposed to be happening. So let's reframe the story and really get your input on it this time. What do you want that to look like? It's one of the toughest topics that I have when either someone is in a culturally um, not sex positive house or in a religiously, um, you know, sex is for marriage kind of house because a lot of those patients still go to that church or belong to that religion. And so you're not blaming the religion as a provider, but you are allowing them to see how they have guilted themselves or shamed themselves. And trying to separate their sexual self from their religious being is, is very, very hard. But that is also a trigger. It can be a trigger for vaginismus. It can be a trigger. I have a lot of patients who have yet to consummate their marriage because they suppress their sexual self for so long, right? Because they were told only for marriage, only for marriage, that they cannot and don't have the tools to turn on their sexual being yet. So that's where a lot of therapy, counseling comes in, um, and sometimes medications to be able to get those neurotransmitters to fire that allows them to be excited um, about sexuality and have arousal. Um, so it's very, very interesting, but it is a very, very um, sensitive topic in the office. It is. It is. So many, you and I have the, you know, so many of the same patients. I have several who grew up in evangelical culture. Sex is bad. Save it for marriage. So great. Okay. Then they get married when they're 20 and they go to have sex with their partner and they can't because their vagina and their pelvic floor muscles are just like, no way. I've been told this is bad and I'm bad. So nope. <laughs> what are they left with? Right. Right. That's so mm-hmm. horrible and, you know, traumatizing. Um, and so in your book, you, you talk about sex positivity and a guide for moving past sexual trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was, as I was looking into talking with you, I wanted to look up, you know, I mean, the prevalence of sexual trauma is so high, unfortunately, in our society. And every, it's like every 68 seconds in America, someone is sexually assaulted. And this can mean abuse, assault, harassment, rape. Um, So when this happens, what are the emotions that survivors can go through um, when they experience any one of these things? It's, I don't want to generalize too much, but I'll throw some out there because everyone's experience is different and valid, but a lot of times there's minimization. So it's this feeling, oh, it wasn't that bad. So maybe they're being told it was, wasn't that bad, but most likely they're keeping it to themselves and they're telling themselves, oh, it wasn't that bad. I just need to move on with this um, because it was really pretty bad. And if they sink into the feelings of how bad it was, it's just, it's a lot to tackle, right? So we minimize, um, we minimize and we can feel just anxious. Like I don't have control of my body in this world. And if we've learned anything through the last 18 months of COVID, it's, we don't, we have much less control than we think we do. So, so for survivors, a lot of that is, okay, I'm here. This is me, mind, body integrated, but I actually don't have as much control of my body as I thought I did. And that's a really scary prospect to move through the world. in. so there's a lot of anxiety. The flip side of anxiety is depression. There's the relational issues and then there's the sexual issues. So I would say that's kind of, that's the most likely what I'll see. And you've approached it in a very positive light. You've mentioned your book. So, you know, going through that and then reclaiming and living a passionate life. 
-hmm. And so how do survivors start to begin that road to recovery and get to a point where, you know, they feel this anxiety or depression or guilt or shame, or, you know, all of those kind of negative emotions and then start to, you know, or blaming themselves for it happening to go and saying, no, I can reclaim this part of myself. I deserve to have a positive um, sex life, a positive sense of self, a passionate life. Um, how does that transition start to happen? And how do you talk about it in your book? Yeah. And, and we first have to understand what happened to us, because if there is that minimization or that self-blame, we really have to understand what happened to us and let that, let that settle process that. Why wasn't it your fault? Right. Why wasn't it your fault? Why was it, why was it not consensual? Um, from there, from understanding it, um, then I'm really looking at regulating the nervous system. So helping the person either, you know, from a scale of one to 10, if they're depressed, so coming up to that mid range, if they're super anxious, coming down to that mid range. And then um, what I began designing in my dissertation and continued designing in the book is a, a four step process to, to really um, embodying that livelihood, that word I used before, eros or eroticism, which is vivacity, vitality, desire. And I'll give you a hint for at least one of the, the stages and that's pleasure. So I love digging into people's sexual template with them. So that's looking at desire. What do I want and arousal? Like, what do I feel? So kind of the psychological process of wanting, the physiological process of wanting, what turns me on? What do I think sexy? So that's a huge piece of it. So that's why it's in the title. So pleasure, pleasure is a huge piece of this work, but there's some bookends to that as well that are equally important. Holly, I have a question for you that I get a lot um, because I am not a therapist. I am not a counselor. Um, but when patients come to me and I do re recommend counseling or therapy, the next question is always, should I start myself or should I start with my partner? So do you have a preference either way if patient is open to either way? Do you feel like one is more successful than the other? Self. So I, I prefer self first. So really body exploration, you know, perhaps this person has been self-pleasuring for years or perhaps they've never touched themselves. So I've got to get a baseline. So where are you? How comfortable are you with it? How much do you know your body? Do you know what works for you? What doesn't work for you? So that could even be, if they're comfortable with that, we, that could be a few weeks of work and then I'll transition it to the partner or the partners. But I really, I do start with self. I love that. Mm -hmm. I like that. And then how can, when you do bring a partner in, or even if someone is going, you know, on their own and starting for themselves, um, how can partners support, um, support each other through this or support their partner who is in therapy? Mm -hmm. So the first thing I want to say is really listen, don't try to fix validate how your partner is feeling because they, they've been invalidated and minimized for, if not, you know, for how knows, for who knows how long. So really validate what they are feeling. Don't minimize, try to support without fixing, and then come on this journey with them. They, they might say, Hey, my therapist gave me this homework and it's partnered homework. Are you up for this? I want an enthusiastic yes there. I really like how you said listen and don't try to jump in and fix. I think that's just such an automatic reaction. It's like, I'm going to fix because they're asking me 
for something. I'm going to offer that when all they really want is to just be heard and to get, you know, their feelings out there. So I really like that, that piece of advice. They, they already feel broken and not right and not normal and fragile. So let's, I, I, it's hard when partners kind of like jump on that bandwagon with them. I'm like, no. So validate what they're feeling, but also, you know, be there as a pillar and a support. And you know, the survivor is doing things well as well. So, you know, we can also shine a light on those. Yeah. And so tell us, tell us what you have coming up. Um, I know the book is coming out, but tell us more. Yeah, absolutely. So there will be an online course designed around the book, but different. So, you know, there will be different um, case studies, a different flow. So a little bit different than what you're getting from the book, but in a 10 week module led by me. Um, so you'll get some of that, those personal pieces in there. And then I'm also opening up group coaching. So this will be 10 survivors per cohort, um, that I'll lead through 90 minute sessions over the course of 10 weeks. And they'll each get their individual experience within that, um, that coaching group. So I'm just, I'm so excited to bring that because the, the group element, um, research shows us it adds so much to the survivor experience in their healing journey. I can imagine, but I mean, like having other people who have experienced, you know, the same emotions and, and feelings can really offer support for people who are going through it themselves. Well, I forgot to say one thing with the partners. Um, please don't ask for details, right? So that's a huge, I don't even know some of the details from my clients. So do, don't ask for details. If your partner offers them, listen with compassion but don't say, oh my gosh, what happened to you? Because you're already then minimizing. They're already telling you it was bad. And you're trying to say, well, how bad was it? It was bad enough. Like, let's just leave it there. So don't ask for details. That's interesting. I would have never even thought of that, that, you know, it's already, you're right. It's already bad enough. And so if you're asking, well, what happened? Something in their mind could say, well, it was bad. Do you need me to kind of tell you or prove how bad it is? Um, or how bad it was. So that's really helpful. Good. Sorry to uh, backtrack there. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's really good. And then how can our listeners stay up to date, up to date with you? I think the easiest way is either through social media. So on Instagram, I'm just Dr. Holly Richmond. So it's D-R-H-O-L-L-Y-R-I-C-H-M-O-N-D. And my website is drhollyrichmond.com. Well, that's easy. That's nice yeah. and simple. And, you know, there's connect forms on my website. Um, and the information for the book is on the website. Information for the course is on the website. And information for the group coaching is coming. Holly, thank you for all the work that you do. You are truly a gift um, in this world and for patients and for all the people who are going to benefit from everything that you have to offer. Thank you so much. And thank you both again for having me on. And thank you for the work that you're doing. I'm just so excited for you. Like this is, there's so, so many, you know, there's so much work here to be done and you're just jumping in both feet and, and I so appreciate you for it. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much. This episode of Her Voice has been a production of Her MD. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends and be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at HerMDHealth. If you're a healthcare provider interested in connecting with us, reach out to info at HerMDHealth.com.